0: Good morning, Lighthouse. I'm Denise Hayward. Our scripture today, a nice short one, is Nehemiah 4, 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Amen. Thank you, Denise. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a a vital passage of Scripture for us, we who live in a culture where there is such confusion about life, about family, about marriage, about gender, about sexuality, about all of it, all of your good design is being perverted and twisted. And and so how, Lord, we who live in the midst of this culture, we have to fight for our families. We have to take up our God-given roles and be strong and courageous for you in these last days. Lord, would you speak through scripture to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So fight for your family. That, that was Nehemiah's strong exhortation to God's people who were surrounded by armies, enemy armies. And that's the exhortation to us by the Holy Spirit today, who are also surrounded by enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we are surrounded on all sides. So we too need to fight for our families. We need to fight for our... Marriages, we need to fight for our children, and we need to fight for our homes. We need to fight against the culture. The Bible would call that the the world, the the system that's in place that's anti-Jesus, anti-God. We need to fight against the flesh. We need to fight against the principalities, the powers and authorities who rule over this present darkness like it says in Ephesians there. So the Christian life, we've been saying last few weeks, is a fight. It's it's not so much a playground as it is a battleground. And so at the end of my life, and I think you probably feel this way too, I want to be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. There is now a crown laid up for me, a crown of righteousness, and not for me only, Paul says, but for all who are looking forward to his appearing, Jesus' is appearing. So I want to, you know, be able to say before I take my last breath, like Paul at the end of his life, I have fought that good fight. How do we fight? the good fight for our families. And we sort of set the stage last week. We said that, you know, primarily, uh, we are going to be navigating life through a family. That's God's design. And so, uh, we said that, that first and foremost, we fight the good fight with humility and courage. And marriage is a covenant relationship, right, between two sinful people uh, who become one, which is amazing. And so these two people, when they get married, they will live together, they will sleep together, they will have sexual relations together, they will, you know, by God's grace, create little human beings together, they will worship and serve the Lord together. And so in the midst of all that togetherness between two sinful human beings, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be tension, there's going to be some things to deal with. And so, these things can breach the oneness. And marriage is, is the most challenging, potentially challenging relationship when it comes to sanctification. And man, if you, if you haven't been married and you're looking forward to it, need somebody needs to tell you that going in at the front end of the thing, okay? because you're going to come in and I'm like, oh, I can't wait till I'm married because when I'm married, it says life is going to be so grand and everything's going to be perfect. No. That's, God did not design marriage for you to be like in some comfortable you know utopia thing. He designed it for you to get sanctified in your life and to demonstrate to the world what Jesus' relationship to the church is. And so... Humility and courage are essential to repair the breaches that happen in marriage. Humility, because without it, you'll never admit your fault. It's always going to be his fault or her fault. And courage, because without it, you won't face the issues in your marriage and, and in your family squarely. You just won't. You'll be, you'll be a coward, a pacifying coward who you're just a peace uh, keeper and not a peacemaker. You'll do whatever it is to be comfortable oh if i can just do that i can ma- manipulate her this way i get through this thing this way whatever that's that's pathetic i told the story last week of you know i was a young on fire for jesus youth pastor and i was going hard in the ministry i was so fired up and And Jesus was was first in my life, no doubt about it. But Jesus was not first in my family. And so I I was neglecting my home. I was neglecting my wife and my little girl, Katie. And, And I wasn't loving my wife and caring for her like Christ loves the church. And so the Lord made it clear to me through some real pain that if you don't, If you can't lead your family properly, you can't lead my church properly. So no family, no church. No family, no ministry. That's the way it works. The recipe for proper priorities in life are not God first, family second, church third, job fourth, hobbies fit, whatever your list is. It's simply God first, period, period. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom, and then all these things will just be added to you. And what he was saying, in effect, is that the Lord needs to be first in your marriage. The Lord needs to be first in your family, first in your church life, first in your career. And when the Lord is first in every area of your life, then your affections will be properly ordered. They'll be put in the right place, all underneath your ultimate love, which is Jesus. So we gain all of Christ for all of life. It's not all of Christ for for most of life, but all of Christ for all of life. Jesus in Luke 14, I think he blew people's minds. Great crowds were gathering around him and going around with him at that point. And he said, if anyone comes to me, imagine a big crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his kids and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Like I imagine everybody going, did he just say now that that's either the the statement of a crazy lunatic or it's God incarnate that was a statement of, of deity Jesus was he was teaching through contrast and comparison he wasn't saying to be my disciple you have to go home and treat your earthly family like dirt Then you can follow me. He wasn't saying that, obviously, right? He's saying that our love and allegiance is to be first and foremost to the Lord our God. Jesus was claiming to be God. So when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will be able to properly love our spouse and our children and our parents and all of our family relationships. Pam and I got engaged about a month after getting saved in 1984. And when we gave our lives to Jesus, we, we bypassed the shallow end of the pool. We went straight for the deep end. And we were at church whenever the doors were open. We served in various ministries almost right out of the gate. We began writing songs for the Lord. We formed a band. Uh, We would play and preach the gospel wherever they would have us. We would go into mental health facilities and assisted living homes. We would go into prisons. We would go on the street corners. We would go to Hollywood, wherever. And we were so excited about Jesus. But we were now on our way to getting married. We We are fully engaged. And so Pam and I, well... In 1980s language, we dug each other. I, I think Gen Z or say you, what is it, cuffing? Where are you? Something like that. I don't know. I have no idea. But we really dug each other. And so we were so in love that we couldn't wait. to. We were just, just chomping at the bit to get married. And I, I just, I couldn't believe that, that sex was soon to, to not only be Uh, okay in God's eyes, but actually encouraged by God. Like, what? That's amazing. And our love was so intoxicating that I began to wonder, is my love for my fiance exceeding my love for Jesus? And it was an honest thing I was wrestling with to the degree that I told my fiance, I can can we talk? And so we sat down and talked, and I said, honey, I I just need to tell you I'm I'm a little concerned that our our love is so so great for each other. It feels like it's almost too great. And so can we can we just make a commitment together? that we're always going to keep Jesus first in our life and in our marriage? And she was like, yes, yes, that is so right. And we made that commitment that day in 1984. And I'll tell you, church, that commitment has served us well to this very day Jesus is our first and greatest love above anyone and anything else, above our children, above each other. So we fight for our families. We do it humbly, desiring the Lord to be first in every area of our lives. Additionally, we said last week that we fight for our family by embracing our God-given roles. Now, this is a big deal. And, um, you know, the order and the design that, that God has you know, created man and women uh, with, it's under attack and has been by our culture for decades. I mean, it's really striking what's happened, especially in the last decade or so. But the various you know, waves of feminism that happened, and some of the early feminism, of course, was good because there was some, uh, you know, some inappropriate, misogynistic kinds of things in our nation along the way. But currently it's the kind where they're trying to convince everybody that there's no difference between men and women. And it is absurd the lengths that culture is going to to try and convince us of that. Well, and even beyond, that you're not even confined to being a man or a woman. It's gotten supremely absurd, but they've been so effective that somewhere in the 80s, the church actually had to invent a word to describe the theology of men and women being created equal, equal in value, worth, dignity, and all of that before the Lord, but distinct and complementary in their design and in their roles. And so I don't know who came up with it in the 80s, but the word is complementarianism. So now you have churches, though I guess we would be in that category of complementarianism. We're comp- complementary. We believe that men and women are, are equals in the sight of the Lord, dignity, value, worth, and all of it. But they're distinct in their design and in their roles. And so, you know, there was not a... Well, there was, there was a word before complementarianism. It was, Duh. But that doesn't work doesn't any, work anymore, apparently. So we talked a little bit about the dreaded S word last week, submission. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Submit, hupotasso in the Greek, a voluntary subordination. Subordinating yourself to uh, someone in headship and it can't be demanded of you has to be offered by you okay hugely important it's about order it's not about value not about gifting not about competency it's about order and so god is not saying that men are better than women or the husband is better than the wife or that he's more valuable or more capable or any of those things God is saying that there's a design within marriage. And if there's going to be joy and flourishing in marriage the way God designed it, then this order has to be respected and embraced by all of us. So, 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Every man in this room, your head is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So notice that even Jesus Christ has a head. God the Father. Does that mean he's less than or less value? Of course not. So, notice that the head of a wife is her husband. Not someone else's husband her husband and not any other man but her husband is her head the head of a girlfriend is not her boyfriend the head of a girlfriend that would be her parents until she gets married so This design is exclusively and specifically for marriage. In addition, I want you to notice that the verse doesn't say that the head of a wife should be her husband. It says that the head of a wife is, is. So the reality of God's created order is that the husband is the head of his wife. It's like gravity, it just is. And so you, you have to deal with it, right? And hopefully you respect it. Hopefully you don't get too close to the canyon rim. <laughs> hopefully you've got a, a balcony or a railing on your balcony so you don't you know, go falling out. You respect it. It's design, designed by God. And, it, and it's, if, we, if we disrespect it, well, things could go bad. So we respect gravity. Ephesians 5.33 says, Let the wife then see that she respects her husband. Respect your husband's headship. Now, does this mean that you're his slave and he gets to do whatever he wants and you get to do whatever he wants? No. In fact, as we'll discover, hopefully this morning, his call by God, and God's designation is to serve you, wife, to love you like Jesus loves the church, and he took off his robe and wrapped the towel around his arm, and he bent down, and he began to wash the feet of those disciples, then said to those disciples, go and do likewise, symbolically saying, I'm calling you to serve. A husband's primary duty to his wife is to serve her in love. Well, it was Father's Day six or seven years ago and Pam and our two daughters, Katie and Kelsey, they took me to the cinema 13 to see Wonder Woman when it first came out. And uh, this, this, this is typically what happens in the Fadness family on Father's Day. I get treated to a movie that my girls want to see, and and so I enjoyed the movie. The girls really enjoyed the movie, and uh, you know Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, the superhero with, you know, I mean she just the thing that to me was striking about that movie is that this this gal Diana Prince has this this true north, this this moral compass that's really strong, and. Uh, she's guided by honor and by courage. And she has this highly developed sense of right and wrong. And she isn't crippled by insecurity. She isn't timid or high maintenance. She takes action when other people do not. And I'm, I'm just going, you know what, that, that's really noble. And it's reminding me, as I'm watching it, it's reminding me of the godly wife in the Bible. In Proverbs 31... There's a, there's a vivid picture that's painted of a godly wife. Let, let me just bring a couple of things out of this proverb to you this morning about what, what does the life of a godly wife look like? Is it servitude, pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen, just cooking? No, that is such a terrible caricature. So, so the first thing from Proverbs 31 is that she is strong. She's strong. Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. So that word excellent, it's the the Hebrew word kail, and it means strength, might, force, virtue, and valor. It's kind of all of that rolled into one. The King James brings it across as virtuous, and so, obviously, this wife is not weak or high maintenance. She's strong, she's confident, she's capable, she's virtuous, and she's rare. Who can find a wife like that? So, gals, you might be going, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm that per- I think I've- I might be kind of high maintenance. Listen, don't let this condemn you. Let this be an example for you something that you can aspire to. So, being needy and high maintenance is is not good for a marriage. It just really isn't. Strength and confidence is super attractive, whether you're the husband or the wife. You know, I'll never forget some years back, a lot of years back, Pam and I were going over some marital bumps uh, in in life and um, at one point <laughs> we know we're having this talk and she looks me straight in the eye and she says I can't live without Jesus but I can live without you Whew. so In other words, get your act together, dude. But either way, I'm gonna be okay. It was such a statement of strength and it made her all the more beautiful (laughs) in my eyes. I'm like, man, my wife, she's amazing. She's strong, this woman, this wife. Her husband trusts her, verse 11. The the heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So her husband is is confident in in her and in her capabilities. She is completely for her husband and their family. He knows it, and this knowledge enriches his life. There's always somebody on planet Earth that is for him. When everybody else might be coming after him, or might be, you know, have an opinion against him, he's got one person on earth. That, man, she's in his corner, and he trusts her. Man, he trusts her with his life. I know of some husbands who are threatened by their wife's strength. It's a puzzling thing to me that that a husband would ever be threatened by his wife's strengths. It seems to me like that must mean the husband is weak and insecure. The husband's central call is to love his wife, as I mentioned, and so our posture towards our wives is, needs to be serving them. We should serve their joy and, and, and serve their flourishing and, and their liberation and their confidence, like Jesus does for his bride. And so the husband of this strong wife trusts her, and he knows that she's for him. And he's glad about that. He's glad about all of that. But thirdly, she's an entrepreneur, this wife. In Proverbs thirty-one sixteen, she considers a field and buys it. She's a realtor. My wife is a realtor. Like, this is my wife. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So she's a businesswoman, and, and she assesses a real estate deal, and she pulls the trigger on it. She's not even having to talk to her husband about it. Like he trusts her. Like You got this, babe. I trust you. Proverbs thirty-one eighteen. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. So she's, you know, she's... Uh, industrious, and, and she's got, you know, in addition to being a realtor, she's got uh, another business selling some other kind of merchandise. This is this wife, this godly, God-fearing wife. My wife, she, she's a realtor. Not only that, earlier this year, she started a solar company with our two youngest boys. She chooses strength, verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. So apparently she goes to the gym and she works out. <laughs> verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. You know, everybody else is freaking out about what's going on in the world and in culture and, you know, in Israel and in Ukraine and all the rest. And she just laughs at it. Why? Why? Because Psalm 2 says that's what God does. He laughs. She's clothed with strength and dignity, splendor and honor. Clothing. Clothing is what people see. It's what they. She's clothed with strength and dignity. Like people see it on her. Like, man. She's like this amazing woman, and she decides, she decides each day, she dresses herself before she goes out of the bedroom and, and into life and meeting people and children and husband and people in town, whatever. She's, before she goes out, she clothes herself in strength and dignity, dignity. She's putting on her spiritual clothing. And her strength and dignity, see, it's not gonna allow her to, to just blab about everything or you know, gossip or do whatever. It won't allow her to do that. She's got this clothing on and it's going to keep her properly honoring the lord and honoring her husband and honoring her family and helping people and and so on because of the way that she conducts herself her hope is vibrant her, she joyfully moves into the future she looks forward to getting older she looks forward to her reward with god She knows where she's going, this godly wife. Her family admires her, verse 28. Her children rise up, and they call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. (laughs) Yep, that's the idea. This family has a profound sense of respect and admiration for their mom, his wife. Her children think she's the best mom ever. Her husband thinks she's the best wife ever. She doesn't seek praise. Verse 30, we'll end on this one. She, it says, verse 30, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So this wife, this godly wife, she understands what a well-lived life looks like. What a, what a great life that she has lived. She was also aware that time would eventually do uh, what, what it does to everyone. It erodes our physical beauty. We get old. We begin to decay. Decay. Now, nowadays, you know, there's all these surgeries and injections and all this stuff. But, I mean, you're, you're, you're just slowing it down a little bit and, and you better hope whoever's working on you is pretty good because you can look pretty weird if you ask me. <laughs> Time can't be stopped. It just can't. She was aware, this godly wife, that charm and the ability to mesmerize people and get them to be taken in by you, it's just smoke and mirrors. It's all it is, just smoke and mirrors. It's like the nutritious equivalent of cotton candy. Tastes pretty good while you eat it, but the only thing it really does is rot your teeth and give you a bellyache. So this woman walked in the fear of the Lord. She lived for God. She understood what was eternal and what was temporal, so she wasn't interested in the praise of man. She was content to let her life speak. She would be praised, not because she sought it, but because her life demanded it. Listen, there are distinct differences between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. And these differences need to be understood and respected and leaned into. So I'm gonna close with a story that I heard John Piper share, golly, it's probably years ago now, but, but these distinct differences, they're, they're deep within us, they're, they're part of our nature. And so, and I'll just sort of make this local, this story. But suppose this morning, there's a young man and a young woman, not married, they're single. Um, they're at church, they'd never met, until greeting time. They met at greeting time, and uh, the young man thinks she's quite cute, quite a lovely girl. And, uh, and then he notices that during service that this cute girl has been very engaged, engaged in worship, engaged in the word and in the preaching. And so uh, at the end of the service, this young man approaches her. And and so if this is you two guys in here right now, this is your story and you, you guys can make it happen. So if it's you, young man, you're gonna approach this beautiful young woman and you're gonna ask her, do you have lunch plans? I, I would love to treat you to lunch. And at that point, she will have, she will have options and, and so she's in charge at this point of her response. She can send a signal to you, no, no, I'm not interested in pursuing a relationship or, or yes, I'm interested. And so in the first case, she would say, yes, I do have plans, but, but thank you very much. And at that point, you should know that that's a, don't pursue that further. However, in the second case, she would say, yes, I do have plans, but give me a moment to make a phone call. I would very much love to have lunch with you today. Yes, that's a big green light. So, neither of them has a car. So he suggests, would you be up for a walk down to Main Street to go get a sandwich at the Twin Falls Sandwich Shop? Maybe soup and a sandwich. And so she says, well, that that would be great. In fact, I, I actually live near there. And I walked to church this morning. And so, so he says, perfect. And they begin to walk from here to Main Street. And as they do, they, they're walking uh, and talking. And he discovers that she is a martial arts champion. She's like, like she's won national tournaments and got, has got all these awards and everything. And so what an amazing thing. And, and so they're just talking about all this stuff. And they get down to the city park And as they're walking by the city park, by the bandshell, all that kind of thing, two rough, mean-looking dudes jump out from the bushes and stop them. And they say, give us your purse and your wallet. Well, They went a step further. They're looking at this beautiful girl. And they say, you know what? You're so beautiful, we want you. And in that moment, the thought goes through the young man's mind. Well, she's, she's a martial arts champion. <laughs> just just a brief moment. That thought quickly passed, and instead of ste- stepping behind her, he, he firmly grabs her elbow, and puts her behind him. And he says to these two thugs, if you touch her, it will be over my dead body. He then lunges at these two thugs and he screams to the girl, run, run. And he's scrapping with these guys and they eventually overcome him and they knock him out cold. And about a minute later, these two thugs are on their back with their teeth knocked out of their face. (laughs) Yeah. Mostly women clapping, but... (laughs) A little crowd gathers and um, the ambulance comes and they put our young man in the ambulance and our young lady gets in the ambulance with them and as she's looking at him, she's, she's thinking to herself, this is the kind of man I want to marry. John Piper went on to say that the, the point of the story is that the difference between men and women is not you know, superior or inferior competencies or talents or gifts or that kind of thing. The differences are deep dispositions in the soul and within the design of who we are at the deepest place in the heart. What did this young man do as a man? He took the initiative. He, he asked her to lunch, that was taking the initiative. He suggested the place where they would go eat. He suggested how to get there. He responded freely and gladly. So, so she, she opted in to the dance. Okay. When, when a man and a woman dance, if, if they're good at it, generally the man will take the lead, the woman follows his lead, but no one thinks about the roles. That it's just so beautiful, it's just happening. It's just just marvelous and lovely. But secondly, this young man wanted to treat her, wanted to provide for her. He was signaling that he was happy to be the provider. He was happy to bless her. It said nothing about who had more money, In fact, for all he knew, she could have been way more wealthy than he was. But thirdly and lastly, it was irrelevant to the young man ultimately that the woman he has that he was with had a greater capacity to defend him than, than he did her. That was irrelevant. He didn't stop and formulate the odds. You know, that little thought, okay, she's, she's a martial artist, she's a champ. It, it, it popped into his head, but then it flew right away. And, and who he was took center, the thought that I will protect her, no matter what the cost. And so he goes into action to protect this girl because he's a man. That's what men do. They protect their women, their wives, their children. Over my dead body will you touch her. It's a matter of manhood. It's not a matter of competency. Clearly, she was the better fighter, <laughs> the story makes clear. But it's never about superior or inferior talents and competencies and all that. It's about God's design of the man and the woman. It really is. The man is primarily, not solely, but primarily responsible for leadership provision and protection. And so, you know, when the, when the ship goes down and the lifeboats are being loaded up, who goes first? Women and children first. I mean, if there was some snivelly, cowardly man sneaking in with the women and children. I think one of the other dudes would get down there and pull that dude out, and they would probably take care of him. This is in us, folks. It is in us by design. Men are derided and mocked and called toxic. All the rest today... Let it be known, men, that when God created that first man, Adam, after all the rest of creation, stars, moon, the sun, the earth, animals, and all of it, God would say, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when God created the man, what did he say? Very good, very good men. God loves the way you are designed. Culture can say all that it wants and denigrate and push the messages through all the social media and the TV and the movie and all the rest, but you have God's word on it. You are God's very good creation and design. Imagine. Husband and wife sleeping three AM in the morning. And all of a sudden they're woken up, they hear the window jiggling, you know, and and, oh and the husband reaches over for his bat and says, Here, honey, it's your turn. (laughs) Like, what Wife, respect your husband. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church, protecting her, providing for her, sacrificing for her. Let's pray. Lord, we are no doubt surrounded by enemies. And armies rise up around us on all sides, like the song says. But our God is greater. He can do all things. So, Lord, we're going we're gonna to do our best to tune out the, the preaching of culture and tune in to the preaching of God's Word. And, Lord, you have designed men and women gloriously, gloriously. And so help us, God, to lean in to who we actually are. Husbands, men, be strong and courageous. Protect those that God has given you in your life. Wives, be strong. Be virtuous. Clothe yourself with strength and honor. Use the gifts that God has given you to bless your family. Be entrepreneurial if the Lord has put that on your heart. Fight for your children and their faith. Don't be discouraged because you've got to a straying child, a prodigal, be discouraged, stay the course. Pray them in. Even if they've been caught up in the LGBTQ stuff or the cultural waves that have roared through this nation. Is anything too hard for God? Of course not. So you keep praying. You watch what God does. Lord, continue to speak deeply and to work profoundly in our lives as men and women, as husbands and wives, as young people. Lord, and perhaps as those here who have yet to make a decision decision to put their faith in Christ. Meet us at the table of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can make your way to the communion table. If you have never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, please do not make your way to the table, because this is a a meal that's only for Christians. But if you would like to become a Christian this morning, I want you to just close your eyes right now, and you can become a believer. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for you and rose from the dead, you you can become a believer right now and be saved by praying this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now as a sinner. Come into my heart and wash away my sin. I receive you by faith. And I surrender all that I am to you now. In your name I pray. Amen.